my whole world was spinning kind of out of control. I mean, I guess I would say that's when at least I can recall depression becoming a real part of my life. I just, the gap between who I wanted to be and who I was just kept getting bigger and bigger. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, I want to welcome Michael Stroh to The Depression Files. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Mike is a mental health advocate and also the founder of Starts With Me. So again, thank you, Mike. Starts With Me is an organization that you've created that we'll talk about a little later on, but it uh, relates to your mental health uh, advocacy work, right? Yeah, it does. It was sort of born out of my personal and family experience. Um with the mental health system here in Toronto and in Toronto, Canada. And, um, as I got more involved with mental health education and advocacy, I saw a good opportunity to what I would think is make it a little more interesting and engaging. Um, and so that's sort of where starts with the idea behind starts with me and the intention behind it came from. Awesome. So before we get into that, because I do want to hear a lot about that, tell us uh, where does your story start as far as mental illness with your family? Sure. Yeah. Um, so personally, I think it started, I think my first sort of sense of self-awareness that I did not feel okay in my own skin Um probably it was around 12 years old grade seven and I sort of had this sense that it it felt as if I was lost and everyone around me had it together (laughs) so I would look at my peers and I would think oh they seem to know you know how to speak to the teachers or how to ask questions and, and find out answers and I don't think that I know how to do that. Uh, It's hard looking back on it, but I think that was uh, what would be described as now as anxiety. Um, And then because I was searching for that to the answer, what the hell is wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? What can I do about it? Uh, And I I had an older brother. I started experimenting with drugs. Um, so I tried marijuana that didn't work. And then I had a great idea to try magic mushrooms. So I was 12 years old, you know, prepubescent little boy, really. And I had a drug induced psychotic episode. Wow. At age 12. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'd never been high or drunk or anything. Right. So psychotic episode due to the shrooms. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, and I, to be honest, it's hard to know exactly because it was so long ago. Right. But through all the work I'm doing, um, the best way I can describe it is a drug-induced psychotic episode. Because you know I was high out of my mind, but I was also it was just crazy and it didn't really end for a couple of days. So that's sort of like how I know it sort of moved beyond just a bad trip, you know? Yeah. Two days. Wow. Yeah. It was horrible. And I was in Chicago on a school field trip. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Can you describe any, do you have any memories? I mean, were you having visual or, auditory yeah. hallucinations or what, what was going yeah. on? Um, yeah, I do. I, I guess my memory is in pictures. So I do have these really distinct images of my three roommates who were supposed to do it with me. And they backed out before I was high, before they saw what was going to happen. But, uh, I can picture them curled up in the bed with the sheets pulled up to their sort of chin, looking at me in horror um, I, and I was sort of hallucinating in terms of color. Everything seemed to be black and white and, oh, it was really, and then I think I ended up in the teacher's room and this is another, I think, symptom or behavior pattern that happens to people in my situation is I was so scared to get in trouble and to be honest that I learned to lie. So that was, I think this was when lying to avoid dealing with the discomfort of whatever was going on became my solution in some sense. So I just lied through my teeth to the teachers. They knew something wasn't right. right. Um, and I remember sleeping on the floor in the teacher's room and fully hallucinate. I, I mean, I don't really know, but the teacher got up and went into the washroom to, I don't know if he was brushing his teeth or whatever. And it, <laughs> he kind of looked like a cartoon character and I don't really know sort of what happened. I was, but that's sort of the gist of it. And then yeah. the, the next day I was just not there. Not and there, then the day not after, there mentally. Like, yeah, totally. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you described yeah. it as a field trip and you talked about some roommates or were you yeah. saying like roommates while you were on that field trip? It was an yeah. overnight field trip. Okay. Yeah, it was a week. Yeah, in Chicago. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, a full week at um, yeah. seventh grade, and yeah. then so had you taken a bunch of drugs with you, or did you take those ahead of time? Um, yeah, I brought them with me on the bus. Okay. Which is another, you know, what is a twelve-year-old kid doing carrying a bag of mushrooms across yeah. the border? You know, just crazy. Right. And you described, I know you mentioned your brother, so that was kind of, it sounded like you were saying that was your access to get the drugs at age 12. Yes. Yeah. He's three and a half years older. So, so he was only 15 and he's letting you weed and, and shrooms and, and such. (laughs) And then would you typically be using the drugs with him? Because it sounds like your friends were kind of fearful of him. Um, or were you doing this on your own? I was kind of doing it on my own, actually. And then, yeah, um, I guess as I got a bit older, it sort of became acceptable to my brother and his friends that I was always hanging around, you know, doing whatever. Um, But it was, you know, and I was always the kid who 
sort of was pushing the boundaries of things. And, you know, if it could be done by someone my age, I was trying it, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And I know from what I read about you, it sounds as though you did at least weed pretty heavily yeah. all the way until yeah. you were 30. So did this uh, psychotic episode do anything to, to scare you away from the shrooms or drugs for a while or anything? Or describe what was going on after you finally recovered after a couple of days from that psychotic episode. Yeah, basically, uh, this is another great sort of warning sign or example of somebody who's not in good shape is that yeah after the couple days had passed and I sort of felt somewhat normal again and it was so weird because I was just you know pretending that I was okay it was so strange um I said to myself I want to do it again (laughs) like I don't want it to be that bad but it was the first time that I ever felt that I had control over how I felt, right? So I could put, you know, it's a common thing for people, I think, with substance use issues. It's for the first time in our lives, or at least for me, I had a sense of control over how I felt. Um, And so my idea was, okay, I had tried weed before. It didn't work, but, you know, I don't want it to be as bad as what happened with the shrooms. So I'll go back to weed and try that. And I remember clearly the moment I felt, I guess, the high from weed. Uh, And it was as if, you know, the heavens had opened. (laughs) This is what I've been waiting for my whole life, to feel this way. Um, Yeah, because I was sort of liberated from all the discomfort that I had been walking around with. Um, and I think a a difficult thing about weed is that it, it's not as, you know, quote unquote destructive as some of the other substances. So you can kind of pretend that you're getting along. Okay. Um, and I did lots of other drugs throughout my life, but I also remember, uh, hanging around, you know, I hung around with a lot of older people people and some troublemakers and I got into a lot of trouble myself. I was convicted of trafficking marijuana when I was 16. And I just remember right around maybe 15, I said, I can be high on weed 24 hours a day and I know that I won't die. Right. Yeah. That was my justification, which is another sign of somebody who's not in good shape, you know? Oh, I'm not going to (laughs) die. So that's my justification. Cause I knew if I did the other things too much, I would probably die or who knows what would have happened. But this was a weird. So it's interesting. You know, you talked about having some control and in a sense, I I completely get it. Like this is going to alter my mind and it's going to be me making that choice Mm -hmm. and it's going to make me feel better from my anxiety and such. Yet on the other hand, you had this psychotic episode experience where Mm -hmm. you don't really have a lot of that control, (laughs) you know? So in a way, yes, you've got a bit of control, but on the other hand, you're, lacking some control too what to, what were some of the other drugs that you've experienced sure yeah um that's really interesting actually how you put that I, I never really thought about it that way and that's very um insightful or helpful 
for me to sort of see the two sides. Like, um, what's that bring up for you? Yeah, it sort of brings up the just the the duality or the um, internal contradiction of I think I have control, um, and maybe in some ways with weed I did, but at the same time my life was so out of control. Um, right. Yes, and, and obviously with the with the more the stronger drugs, so to speak, um, that sense of control dissipates, but. Another thing I brought up, actually, which I'd never fully put two and two together, was that um, the other I, I was sort of scared from certain, uh, scared away from certain drugs because I worried that I may not have control over it. And I think a big thing with substance use issues or even other mental health problems or illnesses we're so scared that we don't have control over anything that anything we think we can have control over, we'll latch on to. Um, and so anyway, those are all the kind of things that I brought up. Um, yeah. so I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I did end up doing shrooms again. Um, lots of times. Um, I did acid a bunch. I mean, I did acid, I think when I was 13, a bunch of times. Um, then I got into, this wasn't until later in high school, but into um, like ecstasy and MDMA and that kind of stuff. Um, Toronto in the late 90s, I guess it was, maybe early 2000s, it was sort of one of the rave capitals of the world. So we had a huge rave scene here. Right. Um, it was really quite, and we have this massive uh, museum, basically. It's called the Science Center. And it's a provincial, you know, it would be like a state museum. Um, and they used to have raves in the science center. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, yeah, and all the exhibits were open. I mean, it was crazy. So, you know, I did a lot of that. And So um, I remember the rave yeah. craze as well. Can you describe mm -hmm. for listeners who may not understand what a rave party was? Can you yes. just kind of break it down for them? <laughs> for sure. Um, so... Basically, rave parties were held in venues or warehouses that were not typical, you know, nightclubs. Although, it's not to say nightclubs may not hold raves, but I don't think legally they were allowed to. Uh, at least in, in Ontario, they have to close at a certain time. So rave parties were basically all-night parties, you know, from maybe midnight 11 to the sunrise, and it was a lot of techno music and house music and lots of drugs, <laughs> um, all kinds of drugs, you know, I guess. And that was a, that was a huge part of it, right? I mean, that was an expectation that yes. people were going to be on hardcore drugs, ecstasy yeah. or shrooman or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, I never went to a rave and it, it seems like that those those rave parties kind of came and went fairly quickly am i off there or what would you say um i think that the or do they still have them maybe i'm just yeah, too old yeah. to realize it. yeah no no I, <laughs> I think they still do have them but yeah they're definitely nowhere near as i don't know if it it's hard to say i, I mean i think there was a pretty at least in toronto i mean it really was a big scene probably for I'd say 10 years, probably from mid nineties to, you know, mid 2010 kind of thing. Okay. 
Um, and they seem to have died off now, but what sort of they turned into, I think because of all the other, um, clubs and everything, like for some reason they got shut down, but then they got turned into somehow the venues, all the nightclubs found a way to skirt around it where they could stay open after hours and just not serve booze. Oh, right. right. So I think that had something to do with it. But, um, yeah, it was a huge scene and, you know, they have these big music festivals, uh, all over the world now. Right. Uh, and I think, which are, you know, rampant drug infested parties. Uh, I shouldn't say infested. That's not fair. But, um, so I think it sort of moved to that where it's, let's just set up a whole week and et cetera, and then let people go crazy and then send them back to their lives kind of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. So you gave a, a pretty long list of some fairly significant drugs you've indulged in. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, uh, you said there were definitely drugs you stayed away from because you were in fear of them. Mm-hmm. Well, but you mentioned LSD and stuff on your list. So I'm <laughs> yeah. just curious, which drugs were you afraid of and why? Yeah, yeah that's a funny question. Um, <laughs> so when I was, I think I was about 14, I was at a house party um, near where I, literally around the corner from sort of where my, you know, I live with my parents most of my childhood and adolescence. And uh, this house, the two brothers were, a little older than my brother and they were both bikers. So they were having this crazy party and I was on shrooms and I was just in a mess and I had locked myself in the washroom because I was, they were all doing a lot of cocaine. And so I was, I don't know, I was really uncomfortable and terrified again. I was just, I don't know what I was doing. And I locked myself in the bathroom and I remember thinking to myself, if I ever get into that, I'm in big trouble kind of thing. Um, so that was one thing I actually have never done cocaine ever. Um, for, and I guess I'm scared of snorting things too. Um, and then I think, I think because marijuana worked so well for me and also I really enjoyed the ecstasy and the MDMA. Um, I just, I guess I didn't need it. And then I was too scared to stick needles in my arm. Um, and I think that was sort of what prevented me from going that route. Right. Yeah. So this was how you lived like middle school, high school, mm-hmm. um, going to, to classes stoned smoking at school oh, or what was that not, like? Yeah. Yeah. Nonstop. Um, and all the way, yeah, so basically, um, because I was dealing from, you know, basically grade eight, nine, uh, I would literally, if I could manage it, I would smoke a joint before I got to school. And then I would skip if I could. And if I couldn't, then I'd smoke a joint at lunch. And then I'd smoke after school and somehow get through dinner with my parents and then all night. Basically, I went I literally all day and all night, any chance I could get. Wow. And you said you were dealing since like yeah. eighth grade. And yeah. So did you just have one 
I'm not going to ask you for a name or anything sure, here sure. on the air. <laughs> but did you just have one one guy you went to and you just bought in bulk and then you sold to other students, or or how did your dealing work when you're in eighth or ninth grade? Yeah, that's basically how it worked. Um, you know, I just sort of became one of the. I guess in grade eight and nine, I was sort of the guy for our neighborhood slash area of the city. And then I guess as I got a bit older, there were other people, but I just sort of became, you know, one of the handful of people you would call to get weed primarily. I mean, weed was the primary thing that I sold. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had a few different suppliers, I guess. Uh Um, do you think your parents had any idea that you were dealing drugs and, and stoned all day long? I think they had a little sense of it, but uh, my mom worked a lot, and uh, my parents were divorced when I was six, I think, and so my mom remarried, and you know, she had a hard time dealing with us, and I think it was hard for my stepdad because he didn't know where the boundary was, and um, we were just, you know, some troubled kids, I guess, but I don't really think so. I think it's a generational thing too. She was sort of pre 60, you know, she was a baby boomer, I guess, but she kind of wasn't part of that whole sixties, seventies hippie. Let's get high all the time thing. She was just before that. So And she never really smoked weed ever. My dad never did. So it just wasn't on their radar, you know? Right. And because I lied so much, um, like when I got arrested, I lied through my teeth. And luckily, I didn't have that much. I didn't get caught red-handed, so to speak. I was like ratted on. And so um, that was an opportunity. That might have been an opportunity to dig into what was going on. But I just lied, you know? And it I think we're a little bit better today. Um, I'm in a, a lot of schools and I, we haven't come that far, but this idea that usually when kids are behaving in this way, something's wrong, you know? And oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and they're just, that question doesn't get asked, right? Maybe there's something wrong with this kid. Maybe there's a reason, you know, this right. is happening, but, and so that never really happened either. So, and who knows had I, been asked that would I have you know would I have even asked for help or admitted I don't know but um well, that kind didn't of, happen. Yeah. you know at that age uh, I would be curious to you know would you have known you needed help you know in your mind mm-hmm. maybe things were great you're making some decent money dealing <laughs> drugs and people know you and you're getting stoned uh, at that point you may not have really realized you know that you needed the help was it just you and your brother in the family yeah, and we had uh, I had an older stepsister and brother, but they were my stepdad's, I think, thirteen years older than my mom, something like that. So, okay. yeah, they. I mean, thank goodness, in some ways, my stepsister was sort of more a mom to me at that time than my mom could have been. Right. Um, and so she didn't live with us all the time. She did uh, sometimes in the summer after university or whatever. And she would come back. She traveled a lot. So yeah, thank gosh for her. Cause she, and throughout my life to this day, she's been a huge part of my life and very helpful. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So what happens uh, when you graduate high school and you're, you're yeah. still dealing, you're still smoking? Uh, so I basically was asked to leave one high school, the first high school. And I went to, uh, so we had five, we had grade 13, uh, which no longer exists. But so in grade 13, I went to a school for troubled kids like me. And if you went to school, you'd pass. If you did a bit of work, you know, you'd get a C. Um, and so I basically cheated my way through that because I used my best friend's girlfriend's homework from another school and handed it in as my own. And I squeaked into one of the easiest universities you can get into in the country. And uh, off I went there. Um, and I was, I sort of, I found a way to get high all the time. There's a lot of my, I mean, it's university, so people are partying and all kinds of stuff. And, um, I managed, I, I wasn't dealing in university. Um, cause it was really hard to do that in Montreal, um, for all kinds of reasons that don't matter. But, uh, so I worked a tiny bit, although I couldn't hold down a job and I, it was just horrible. And that's when also my brother had his first psychotic episode and my brother, uh, now or was diagnosed with schizophrenia so all of those things were happening um in university the 9 11 attacks happened um and montreal is a really politically active place so you know my university was this battleground of sort of oh it was just madness so my whole world was spinning kind of out of control um and i did manage to squeak through university uh but i cheated and I lied and, you know, just the whole behavior just continued, you know, and I was, it was sort of the beginning of, I mean, I guess I would say that's when at least I can recall depression becoming a real part of my life was I just, the gap between who I wanted to be and who I was just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I guess the, the stuff with my brother and I just, that's when I started to get sucked into pretty negative thought patterns and destructive thinking and sort of anger and all these things started piling on and I didn't know how to deal with them. And, you know, marijuana's, and I never smoked bad weed either. So I always smoked the best possible weed I could get my hands on. And it's a great painkiller, you know? Um, and so I just kept stuffing everything down and, you know, that's sort of, one of the things that doesn't help depression obviously and so that all got worse and uh, when um, when you say yeah. depression creeped in yeah can you talk about what what kinds of things were you experiencing that whether or not you knew it then at least in hindsight what were mm -hmm. some indicators that depression was creeping up yeah um i think the first thing it was a mix between uh sort of feeling helpless and confused all the time. I mean, it's also hard to know because I was stoned all the time. So it's such a weird history, um, but definitely sort of hopelessness, um, negative thinking patterns. Um, and at, nah, it's so funny, I never really put this together, but when my brother got sick, um, I had found, this is a great example actually, and it sounds silly, but I 
finally got a date with this girl. She was so hot. <laughs> just I had sort of just oh, wanted this date and this for so long. And so, you know, we went out on a date and I couldn't get an erection. <laughs> like it was I had sort of prided myself on being sort of this um good boyfriend slash sexual partner slash you know cute guy that could was good you know I always treated girls really well but that was sort of a sense of um pride or something weird you know and so yeah and I couldn't get an erection like over and over we she was so patient with me and just not never and I never had that problem ever and I never had it again which is like, also weird. Over and over in one night, are you saying? Or no, like multiple? no. Okay. Like multiple, yeah. And I just, I was like, I, and so I guess that was my body's reaction to trying to tell me something was wrong, I guess. Yeah. And I remember going to the school psychiatrist or I, I, I went to somebody at the school. I think it was a psychiatrist. And we started talking and he sort of was like, well, maybe you should think about taking some antidepressants or whatever. And I was in my back of my head. I thought, what the hell are you talking about? I can't get an erection and I want to have sex with this girl. That's what the problem is. <laughs> and you want it's me not, on antidepressants? Yeah. What the yeah. like, Make the connection yeah. for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I was just so far out of reality. Right. I mean, it's uh and then, and then I guess, I don't know, I guess that sort of passed. Did you but, actually start on meds at that time then? No, I literally said, uh, okay, buddy, and I like walked out of the office. Right, right. It literally made no sense to you. Nothing. Yeah, it just absolutely no sense. I didn't even cross my mind. I didn't even know what mental health was, I don't think, to right, be honest. Right, yeah. Or really what addiction was. I mean, I kind of knew about it, but... Um, and yeah, and then so then, but that sense of self-loathing and hopelessness and obsessive destructive thinking that stayed <laughs> right yeah that didn't go away with the uh, without getting too much into your brother's own stuff um mm -hmm. if you're not comfortable talking about that could you talk about how that impacted you it sounds like your brother went through some type of um uh mental break yeah uh, and yeah uh, no, it was how did that impact you and how did you find out about it? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I was, I, I'll never actually forget perfectly. I, it was, I think the start of my third year or second year, um, third year. And I was walking through a mall in Montreal. My mom called me and she said, you know, your brother's gone crazy basically. And he's, behaving in this way and these ways and it's really scary and we don't know what the hell to do and we had I mean it was clear that he was deteriorating but again sort of this whole mental health illness literacy or awareness it wasn't around 15 years ago really and so oh man so it it, it made sense it, it sort of was reasonable that that was happening considering his behavior leading up to it but it was still quite horrifying and he had he he wrote some really kind of i don't know um weird letter and he had dropped it in the mailbox of my ex-girlfriend's front door of her house in toronto and then 
literally, I think an hour later, I got a phone call from her and she was in, she was a hysterical. She's like, your brother just left me this note. It was just like, Oh my God. Um, and I think, so that certainly was a lot of shock, I guess. And then over the years is, is sort of, it was more, more difficult to deal with. Uh, cause I was often a frontline caregiver for him. So I'd have to go and, um, to the psych wards and get him or try to talk him into complying with the doctors or sometimes he'd be apprehended by the police and end up in jail. And I'd then have to go to the jail and sort of, you know, literally like in the movies, talk to him behind the glass and convince him to transfer to the mental health courts so that he could get some proper care. Um, and then I lived with him for a while. It was just absolute madness. And one example of how insane it was, was it's when this was so clear. I, w- I remember waking up, walking into the living room and seeing him sitting, he was snorting ecstasy off our living room table while smoking a joint. And I, and actively psychotic basically. And so, and I walked up to him and I started lecturing him about it. And then I clearly remember picking up the joint from the ashtray and smoking it as I'm lecturing him about how bad his behavior was. (laughs) So at this point of your life, you can spy a bit of hypocrisy there. (laughs) Yeah, to say the least. And that's another hard thing about this is that when we, you know, I would always, I don't know if I used him as a scapegoat, but I would think, well, at least I'm not as crazy as he is. Right. Which is an honest, I mean, that's just an honest reflection. But, um, and so then I could kind of pretend that I was okay. And it was just super duper crazy. Were uh, were you guys pretty tight growing up and were you tight at this point? Yeah, I think yes. And I mean, yes and no, but, I think, you know, outside of the typical brother crap, um, yeah, we were pretty close, I would say. And we still are now, which is nice. Um, but yeah, it was, man, it was just horrible. Well, you Um, were pretty young to hear the news that your brother had a psychotic episode and, and diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that had to have been shocking to to really come to grips with yeah i think and just wrapping your head around you know just how sort of un it's so different than normal consciousness i guess or just to understand that this person isn't doing this on purpose and that they're in the grips of an illness and and there's nothing you can do about it, so to speak. You know, you can't fix them. You can't make them do anything. You can't. And so that adds to the hopelessness and the, just the misery of my own life, you know? Yeah. Well, and he was three, he is three years older than you, right? So yeah. then here you are taking care of your older brother and yeah. trying to kind of talk some sense into him while he's going through a psychotic episode and doesn't understand what you're talking about. That yeah. has got to, that's got to be 
so challenging. And now you, yeah. you have so much more education around mental illness and so much mm-hmm. of a better understanding. It's a lot different than when you first experienced his mm-hmm. mental illness in 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you, uh, you make it through college cheating and yeah. lying. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, from there, take us from that point. College sure, yes. ends, and what does life bring your way then? Um, my sister ran a big festival in uh, Whistler, BC, uh, which is where the 2010 Olympics were. It's near Vancouver. Right. Um, and so she would hire me for a couple weeks every year, and that turned into a couple months. And I had lots of failed attempts at. Another thing I think that's a clear indication that somebody's in rough shape is I would, you know, even in university, I really wanted to get involved with sort of United Nations stuff and in school activities and everything. But anything that got in the way of me getting high, just I pushed away. So I would change my goals to meet my behaviors. And, you know, most people, I would say, generally will change their behavior to meet their goals, you know? So if it's if they need to study more, then they'll stop partying and they'll study more. Um, and I was the opposite. And so I had all these sort of opportunities to pursue interesting things in community work. And some people I know ended up creating some really cool things that I just wasn't, I could, wasn't capable of participating. So, um, I worked, you know, I smoked weed with a lot of people from, uh, big rock bands and all kinds of bands, uh, famous bands and whatever. I was the concert producer guy. Um, and then actually this was when things started to get open doors maybe to recovery was I, the one thing I did do with my brother cause it didn't engage, didn't have to talk very much is we started playing poker And then we started beating our friends at poker and then, or I did, I guess. And then my brother one day said, let's put money on the internet. And then I basically became uh, a pretty successful online poker player. Um, So it was perfect. I could, I didn't need a job. I could lock myself in my apartment and get high all the time. Uh, And money came out of this thing called the internet and it was crazy. It was totally crazy. Wow. Um, Was this like huge money games that you were playing? I mean, yeah, not huge. So I wasn't a millionaire, so to speak. Um, I think in my my career earnings online gross, I think, was just over four million bucks. Oh, my Uh, goodness. Yeah, it was crazy. But, you know, profit, probably, I don't know, probably around... 750,000, something like that. Right. Um, but you know, then that was the U S dollar was quite a bit more than the Canadian back then. So, and it was tax free in Canada too. Um, so, I mean, I was making a lot of money considering I was incapable of even getting a, a minimum wage job, you know? Right. Um, but I took it super seriously. I worked really hard at it and it, it started to help me believe that I wasn't a pathetic, useless human being. Right. If that makes, you know, it was like everything in my life is a goddamn mess. 
but for some reason this I'm good at it. It probably became a bit of an escape from reality. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to say it for sure. Yeah. And, and it was a, an escape that was positive too. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. like you said, you were successful in it. You were making yeah. money. It could make you feel good. Yeah. Um, would you say, I know you're describing it essentially as like a money maker, almost like a job. Would you yeah. say you were addicted to it or is that, is, yeah. is there a distinction between I'm utilizing my gambling skills for my full time yeah, job yeah, yeah, yeah. and being addicted <laughs> to gambling? Like, is that, I yeah. don't even know. I don't know. Is there a difference? No, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, I think there is a difference. Absolutely. I, I, you know, to the, the layman person who's not familiar with poker, um, it's not really gambling in a sense. So I, it's similar to the stock market, you know, it's, you're, you're basically betting on probabilities. Right. Um, and, and actually I would say poker is actually relatively finite as the stock market. You have no idea what the hell's going to happen. You can still make educated decisions, but poker is really mathematical and really, sort of there's a boundary to some extent to what is possible so you you know the really really good players know this stuff inside and out and then on top of that they know the characteristics of the people they're playing against so they make incredibly well calculated decisions that are in the long term really profitable decisions right um, and so, and I was lucky enough to be surrounded by guys that were making millions of dollars and, um, I could learn a lot from them, you know, and sort of, it was weird. Yeah. So no, it was, it was, I took it as seriously as I could considering how kind of messed up I was. Um, and I, I think maybe I, I, I misbehaved quote unquote, with my playing a little bit, but not like very rarely. Right. And so that's when like, I would let my emotions get the best of me. And then I would sort of, but I, I still wouldn't necessarily consider it gambling. Like I, I just sort of lost my ability to be disciplined and sort of made some bad decisions, but I don't think it was really gambling. It's interesting that you describe it as not gambling and Maybe that's one of the indicators of it being a problem. Like yeah. in my mind, like you compared yeah. it to more like the stock market. Well, I've always described the stock market as gambling, <laughs> you know, so, um, but I, I believe a true gambler would probably say, I'm not gambling. <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe not. Well, the thing, so one quick thing to that is like in poker, you really are making mathematical decisions and you can actually break the equation down to this actually will lead to money. Right. And, and you're another thing about it, which is distinct against any other form of gambling, if you will, uh, is that you're playing against other human beings. Right. Yeah. So I'm not playing against the casino, like the casinos, you can't win in a casino game. Like right. you actually can't win. You, yeah. you know, you can win once and you feel like you can win and you think you can win, but poker i'm actually just playing against another human being right. so if i make if i make better decisions than that human being then i'm going to win yeah. and if i play against people i know that i'm better than then i'm even more likely to win so poker is a really unique game in that sense um yeah that makes so anyway, a lot yeah, of, that makes yeah, a lot of sense yeah. I, I do i say the same thing like going to a casino 
the the house has the advantage. Otherwise, they wouldn't be yeah. putting up new hotels left and right in Vegas. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Yeah. Clearly, they're making some money out there. Totally, yeah. Um, and I, I've never, I never play casino. Like I've never put money in a slot machine, you know, kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. how how often, how long were you gambling? Were you gambling like all night and then you'd sleep all day? Or yeah, what was your gambling? Kind of what yeah. not gambling? What was your poker playing like? Sure. <laughs> and. Uh, and how long, how many years did you go on like this? Yeah. Um, basically, I, I played, man, I played a few years into my sobriety and recovery, but I, when it was really bad, I would literally smoke myself into a coma and like pass out in my desk chair with the computer on. Like the poker had finished, but I'd be so tired that I like couldn't get out of the chair. Right. Um, Oh, it was horrible. And I would wake up in the chair sometimes and be like, what the hell am I doing? And like drag myself to the bed. Um, Did you ever yeah, wake was, up to like an incredible loss that you didn't even realize had happened? Uh, no, thank okay. goodness. I, sure. I, that's sort of like a fail safe with the poker thing. Unless somebody like hacks into your account. Right. It times you out. Okay. If you don't, you know, if you don't respond, thank goodness. My God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And then, I, I was at the World Series one year and I came home to MC a friend's wedding and I met a girl <laughs> and that was sort of the next stage of my road back to sanity. Um, yeah, I guess you want me to go on with that? Story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at this point you said, is this your three years into sobriety when you meet this woman? No, I was still a mess. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this was maybe about a year or two years before I got sober, but I, yeah, I met this girl and we started dating and, you know, she came to visit me in Vegas shortly after. And then, and I remember she always tells the story. I said, I don't want a girlfriend. <laughs> um, and that was part of me just being, you know, I can't let bring someone into this world of insanity. Like who's going to love me? You know, I'm a goddamn mess. Um, and I was always, a sensitive person and warm hearted. And like, I tried my best to be nice to people and to girls, especially. Um, and I guess she liked that because that was different than most guys she had met. And so I literally, I, you know, I tried to hide and lie to her as much as I could about how much I was getting high and all that other nonsense. Um, and we, ended up moving in together. And then I, I did manage, you know, I, I told her too, I said, I don't want to live like this forever. Like this isn't who I am and what I want out of my life, which was true. Um, I just didn't realize how screwed up I was and how hard it would be to change. And so then I did manage, I think for about three months, I went from Monday, Sunday night to Friday morning sober and then I would literally be high from Friday morning to Sunday night, like nonstop. And then, but that's sort of the, that was, I guess, another sign of like, wow, I really have serious issues. And then, so I started lying to her about that. And then, oh my God. And then we decided it was a good idea to get married, if you can believe that. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so then we got married, I'm still playing, and then we buy a house, then she starts a business and then basically the house of cards that I had and that I had built, you know, to prop up 
the sinking pit of a soul inside of me um, was collapsing, basically. I, I had had some suicidal thoughts throughout my life and some pretty messed up sort of fant- suicidal fantasies. And um, they were creeping back a little bit. And the marriage, it was just, it was just so clear that enough was enough. And if I didn't do something serious, then I'd be in big trouble. Um, like I'd be alone or I'd be, I don't know, in a psych ward or who knows where I would have ended up. But, uh, so that was the point of, uh, when I asked for help for the first time. Wow. Yeah. That was, uh, how many years into the marriage and were you still married when you asked for the help? Yeah, we, um, gosh, I honestly, I think we were married for, oh man, I'm going to, we got married. Yeah. We were married for nine months, I think. Okay. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I think that's right. It was either one year and nine months or nine months. And I think it was nine months. And, uh, and when you say you asked for help, who did you ask and how? Yeah. Um, so I, I, it's funny, uh, a guy that I used to rave with a lot and party with, <laughs> he was, and he was one of my best friend's older brothers. And you said you needed help and he gave you another bag of shrooms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, here, man, these ones, these ones are a little more chill. Um, no, he was an addiction counselor at a rehab center. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, if he can do it, maybe I have a chance. Um, and so I called him and he, you know, I'm sort of pretty connected into the whole 12 step world. Um, maybe not as much as I used to be, but you know, one of the beautiful things about that world is people, you know, it's sort of born into us that we help people for the sake of helping them because we know what it's like. Right. And he was just so kind and helpful and you know, he did the little silly intake survey that they do to, you know, it was like, check, check, check. And it's like, yeah, it looks like you got a problem, Mike, you know, like, yeah. thanks Al. Um, his name is Al too. That's funny. Yeah, okay. Um, and he said, call this number and it was an outpatient addiction program at a hospital nearby and tell them you want help. Um, and I remember that sort of this moment where he looked at, he I don't know. It was the first time in my entire life that I knew I actually was going to make a decision that I wasn't going to live like this anymore. And I actually believed it. You know, I'd lied to myself that I was going to change and stop forever. Um, and that's such another torturous thing about addiction or other, you know, emotional issues is some, you know, the addiction and the illness it stomps on our soul or on our cry for sanity and for help and for peace. It's just like, there will be no peace ever, you know, kind of thing. It's, and, and this was the first time that that ever opened up for me. It was unbelievable. And I, I looked, I broke down in tears basically. And he gave me a big hug and he just said, um, it doesn't have to be like this anymore or something like that. I can't, you know, Yeah. it was just such a, an incredible relief. And yeah, that, that's really cool. I, I love the fact that he used to be one of the ravers and now he is in the, the field helping people. 
And I think that many social workers, therapists, and all have their own story. And I don't know if it's due to legal concerns or the the way the profession is, but so many of them I feel like can't or aren't willing to share their story. And in my mind, it gives so much more credibility to know, like, this guy's been there. He knows what I'm going through. He knows what it was like. Um, Yet so many, uh, I believe, are in the field because of their personal experiences (laughs) and don't share that piece. That's been my experience, at least. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And I it's funny, I'm studying, I'm doing a master's right now in counseling psychology. And we're, I'm just going through the whole ethics thing and the confidentiality and et cetera. And I'm, I, I sort of understand the need for the therapist, so to speak, to be silent about that stuff. Right. Because it's not, I don't know, but at the same time, like you're saying, it, there's something just so wonderful for the other person <laughs> to hear that, you know, to hear that they're they're talking to someone who deeply deeply understands what right. they're going through you know yeah and, 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 and you know i i think i have limitations on where how far i would go in at least my thought of sharing right, right. like your first appointment that you have with somebody i'm not expecting you to be like hey i did shrooms too <laughs> Man, cool yeah. right so not like that but to be able yeah. to say you know i've gone through depression i've been there um, mm-hmm. just that alone is huge. Um, it is. but like you said, there are two sides of that coin. Yeah. Um, so when, I, I'm more on your side too, but <laughs> when, uh, when your buddy <laughs> gave you this number, yeah. were you able to call and did you do that quickly? Um, I know for me that was, it took me so long after I got a great contact number to even reach out, um, was still oh. tough. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know what, I think I had been desperately wanting to stop for, well, you know, probably since I was, I guess I knew I needed, I knew what I was doing was bad in high school, um, but probably early into my 20s, I desperately wanted to stop or knew I had to stop. So, no, I sort of waited for this moment for 10 years, literally. Um, and, yeah, so I called the number. And I remember the lady saying, you know, Michael, you need to be sober for 72 hours before you come here. (laughs) And I was like, what? I was like, I can't be sober for 72 minutes. Yeah, right. How the hell is that supposed to? It's like I wouldn't be calling you if I could do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I could have checked into a detox. Um, (laughs) But for whatever reason, I don't know, it just sort of something happened. And I remember, uh, the guy who was helping me said, you know, since I was already high that day, you know, he sort of said, go and smoke your fucking brains out or do whatever you need to do until the day is over. And then, uh, you know, tomorrow it's done kind of thing. And that's what I did. (laughs) And you were Uh, able to quit just cold Turkey for the 72 hours. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's so hard for us to describe these moments, you know, and for you, like, 
I don't know if you could have, if you have been able to find the right words to describe what helped you make that phone call, as you're saying, you waited a long time. Like, what is it that just lets us free in that moment? You know, it's hard to describe, but, um, it worked, I guess. And I went to the program and I remember the first, I saw a board, I, they had a whiteboard in the, in the meeting room or whatever. And it said, sobriety brings all the things that drugs and alcohol promised. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So cool. And I just thought, Oh my God, that's totally true because we get high and to stuff down the pain and that whatever else we're doing it for. Um, cause we're in search, you know, the, I think the intentions are good for drug addicts or whatever. It's, we want to escape our pain, you know, right. our but our means are flawed, you know? And so we need new means. I'd like to say, I really like the saying of drugs and alcohol weren't never my problem. They were my solution. You know, my problem was me and my mental health issues and whatever. Right, right. So I, I needed a new solution basically. Um, yeah. And was this a, a program strictly for um, sobering up or did this also address the mental health issues? Yeah, no, it was, that's, uh, it was just strictly for sort of sobering up and, um, learning about addiction. And I, we, we cut, co- we did cover mental health a little, uh-huh. uh, we covered anger. Um, there's some weird acupuncture for our ears or something. I don't know. It was, okay. it was interesting, but yeah, so then uh, that was three weeks. And then, three weeks uh, inpatient? Uh, no, outpatient. So okay. uh, five days a week. Uh, and it was, I think, like noon till 5 p.m. or something like that. Right. Yeah. So three weeks goes. You stayed sober for those three yeah. weeks. And, yeah. And like you said, you're learning about things and, and mm-hmm. such. So it sounds like a really good three weeks. Yeah, it was. No doubt. And then, um, then you finish that and mm-hmm. how are you feeling when you finish that? Like, okay, I got this. Or were, were there yeah. any nerves? <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm, for me, I was in a three week, uh, partial hospitalization program. And when it was the whole last week, I was like, oh my God, like it's right around the corner. I'm going to be back at work. I don't know what I like. I don't have uh-huh. who, who's going <laughs> to support me then. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. PHP. Uh, <laughs> There's a PHP in the big hospital that I do a lot of stuff at. Um, I've never heard anybody use that word before, uh, since or outside of there. Um, so I don't – I think one thing that was helpful was uh, the guy, Al, who got me in there said, I have this friend of mine named Jeremy, and you should call him. He'll help you. And so I sort of I called this guy, and I was in touch with him, and then – after the treatment ended or whatever the program, uh, well, one thing happened. Yes, I thought my life was going to be easy and perfect because now I wasn't using drugs, but I had no idea what I was really in for, you know. And then uh, my wife said, we should try to get pregnant because who knows what you did to your sperm. Um <laughs> And, and like literally she got pregnant like the next day. <laughs> and so then, yeah. And then, oh my God. So, but I don't know, I guess I, I think I was literally because I was high my whole life. I was, I just lived in this bubble. So 
it didn't even occur to me that leaving that place would be hard. It just kind of was like, well, here I am. I might as well try to figure out what to do. And, and then I called that guy, Jeremy, and he, uh, became my sponsor in AA basically. Um, and the guy fucking saved my life and like held my hand. I called him every single day for at least three years. Wow. Um, yeah, every day, like, and whether it was just to say hello or just to talk it, you know, I was a 13 year old kid in a 30 year old man's body, you know, like right. I had full on temper tantrums, like my emotions were all over the place. Like I was, it was a mess. I was a fucking mess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I got on sort of a waiting list for psychotherapy, like government covered psychotherapy, which took almost two years. Uh, and then I got a psychiatrist. The, and that the sort of, waiting that list sort of, was two years. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I know. Cause it's paid for by the government. Right. So. But anyhow, yeah, it's ridiculous. But, um, well, it's ridiculous for us. to, And there's a huge movement going on right now in our sort of country for improved access to mental health care uh, that's paid for by the government because right. there's none, basically. Wow. Um, yeah. So they, and then and then that was sort of my, my entrance into this world of mental health. It was kind of, wow, you know, again, this idea, you know, drugs were never really my problem. You know, my problem was mental illness. Right. <laughs> and, you know, if I, if I had a freaking, maybe if I had learned there was another way to deal with this shit, I may have been able to do that. Right. Um, but anyway, so, you know, then I, I saw the psychiatrist and sort of it, the first thing out of his mouth was like, for sure, ADHD. And then depression and then anxiety and um we started talking about uh i started taking meds for adhd and then the next thing was uh to try thing um some antidepressants and i think the adhd meds seemed to be really helping me quite a bit so i was sober for a year before okay. before so you saw the therapist yeah, well, yeah, before the psychiatrist, people always said, like, if you're in recovery from addiction, substance use, and if you'd been, you know, in my case, high since I was before I had pubic hair, right. uh, it's good to sober up for a while because, like, you don't know if your symptoms are really because of the drugs or the alcohol, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so maybe let that pass or give yourself some space and then and then seek sort of psychiatric care unless you know unless you're in crisis like yeah you know go well i know what, for sure. yeah i know exactly what you're saying i've uh always heard that too when there's a dual diagnosis of some type of addiction and depression or another mental illness you've got to really sober up and clean up so you know really what part is the booze and the right. addictive piece versus what is possibly the mental illness yeah yeah uh, definitely yeah and then Man, you know, since, you know, I'm actually on, no, what is it, 2-11-11, on November 2nd, it'll be seven years for me. Wow, congratulations, that's phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it is, and so I literally, every single day since November 2nd, 2011, I've worked at healing myself um, and getting better, and 
Yeah, so like literally I have a psychotherapist, which is covered by the government. My uh-huh. psychiatrist is too. I have a marriage counselor, which is also covered by the government. Nice. Uh, yeah, and I also have a mindfulness doctor who's covered by the government. I mean, it's sort wow, of like... sweet. It's like, Yeah, it's incredible. It's like mindfulness psycho, group psychotherapy, basically. Uh-huh. How, uh, uh, how frequently incredible. do you go to each of these different doctors, like the psychologist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, let's see. In the beginning... Um, so, you know, literally, and that's why my sponsor was so helpful, like waiting so long, you know? Um, uh, so I guess I saw this psych- in the beginning, I saw the psychiatrist, I think once a month and then, you know, once every few months and then, cause you know, it's kind of silly, but psychiatrists really are just there to fucking give you medication, you yeah. know, like they're not, yeah. which, which is another huge issue like they should also be providing psychotherapy in my opinion but right and some of them do you yeah. know um, so then yeah I, I pretty much i saw the therapist as much as i could uh so probably it was like once a week or once every two weeks okay yeah and i was still you know going to meetings 12-step meetings all the time and right i was i was re- like i read so many books on sort of healing and on mental health and psychology. And I was, you know, watching YouTube videos of people to learn. I was obsessed in a good way with like doing anything I could to help myself feel better. Yeah. Well, that's um, what it takes, right? I mean, yeah. it takes becoming really selfish, really focusing on you and your self care and your recovery. Yep. Yeah. Because ultimately I think, and i a lot of people get caught up in this and it's, I had a lovely, I was doing a, a presentation at a, at the four seasons hotels today, which I don't know if they're in the U S it's a really fancy yeah, hotel. We do. Yeah. Have. And right on. Yeah. So there was, it was originally a Canadian company and anyway, a woman came up to me after and she said, it was so nice to hear you say that like your self care is the most important thing to you like in front of anything else in your life because you know she's going through some things and uh with her family and she said it just helped me not feel selfish and and worried about like worried that taking care of myself is selfish like because in some ways you have to be selfish and protective over your self-care but it's actually so that you can be a mother or a friend or a son or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You so, cannot yeah. really help others if you're not helping yourself. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, man, literally just eat, sleep and breathe all of this stuff. Um, so now you're, playing. you're, you're yeah. seven years sober. Um, yeah. and yeah, I think you were maybe just going to say you ended up quitting the poker gig. Yeah. And yeah. then, uh, and now you have your own organization. Did you go from the poker into uh, being the founder of this organization right away, or was there an intermediary job, or how did that work out? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think part of so I was helping my wife build a business. Um, we own a little private daycare, basically. So once we got that sort of off the ground, then. Um, the second child was on its way 
And I was just losing my shit, basically. I was like, I can't do this. I never wanted to be a poker player. Um, so now that the daycare is sustaining us and whatever, I gotta, I can't do this anymore. And that's sort of at the same time I had the idea for the mental health advocacy stuff. And I was, um, started to do some lived experience talking at, uh, the center for addiction and mental health, which is the biggest mental health hospital in Canada. And I sort of had this in the back of my head. I just figured I could, I think I could make this way cooler than what I'm seeing. And so I slowly, you know, I was still really heavily involved in making the daycare run and work. And so that sort of sustained this vision. Um, and let's see, that was about four years ago. And then I'd say about a year, about May 2015, I think I was like, all right, I'm going to start this thing. It's going to be called Starts With Me because, you know, I know that if I'm not, you know, I think generally speaking, there's a, a lack of emphasis on sort of the need for people to take responsibility for themselves and their situation. Um, and that doesn't mean like you don't need help and you shouldn't get help because God knows like I've gotten <laughs> more help than most people. Um, but it really does start with you, you know? Yeah. And so... I'm going to call it that. I got a friend who's a graffiti artist to do a logo and I started blogging and then I started developing relationships with teachers at schools. And then, you know, I guess I've been, it's, I've really been going at it full time since January. Okay. Yeah. And it's really uh, starting to work. Yeah. Like I just got a big deal with the city of Toronto to train a bunch of uh, staff that work that, look over all the child and youth programming in the city. Um, and yeah, so it's, yeah, I guess that's my little spiel on that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. So it's called Starts With Me. Yeah. You talked about educators. Uh, what do you do when you meet with educators and what are some other organ, uh, groups that you would work yeah. with? Yeah, so I think it started off with students. So I still do a lot of high school stuff and I'm starting to do middle school and even younger now. Um, like tomorrow I'm doing, uh, two back to back workshops with, um, 80 teachers at high school. So, you know, they said, can you help us understand how to communicate to our students better? And so that it's the first time I've actually going to work specifically with teachers Cool. Which would be cool, yeah. And then, you know, today I was at the Four Seasons. I've done a lot of sort of, well, I've done a fair amount of corporate stuff, and that seems to be growing. And so that's more like lunch and learn, mental health awareness. Okay. Um, I have done some training sort of, and I guess I kind of try to blend theory and sort of overall mental health education with more sort of mindfulness-based experiential activities so that people can experience the ideas that they're being taught, you know? So it's like I said today, it's you, people say all the time, don't be judgmental, you know, be kind and patient. But like, what the hell does that actually mean? You know, right. like when you're in 
interaction with somebody and they're losing their shit or they're angry or they're sad, this idea of don't be judgmental, you know, how do you actually implement that when you are stressed yourself or when you're triggered or like, anyway, so that's sort of the stuff that I get into. It's, and that all comes from my mindfulness practices and experiences. Um, so I try to, it's to me, we're way beyond the, like reducing, let's talk about mental illness or reduce stigma. Like that is well established. I think not to say that people have changed their minds, but I think, I think I've just, I guess found a niche or an opening to take that conversation further and thank goodness for, you know, people like you and uh, the plethora of people out there that have really brought this conversation to the forefront and I'm just in a really fortunate position to benefit from all of that and get to help carry the baton, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. What if people want to get to your website uh, and yeah. find out more about you and your organization starts with me? How do they mm-hmm. find you? Yeah, it's um, starts with me. .ca and um and I would there's a ton of it's funny the lady at the hotel today was like there's all kinds of great things on the website you you know talking to the staff you should go check it out um and I never sort of think about that but there's quite a lot of resources on there um starts with me.ca and the um the social media handles I think are at starts with me underscore for Twitter and Instagram. And I think Facebook is starts with me mental health. Um, and one last thing I guess that I'm trying to build is this thing, the state of mind festival. So all the work I do with the kids in high school. So we've created in school curriculums that are aligned with the ministry of education's uh, lesson plan stuff. And so kids do work in class, they get graded on it, and then the, the content that they create gets celebrated at an annual festival. Wow, cool. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, we've had two of them. Um, and, and then in the evening, we bring together sort of a group of stakeholders in the system to present the innovative work they're doing. And we've had some really cool things presented and you know, I, from being a festival producer in, in the past, like that's something that really excites me is what is the next phase of taking all these amazing people's ideas and voices and initiatives and, you know, system hacks and all this crap and bringing them together so that they can put the pieces together and really start shifting the system, if you will, um, in ways that we can't see now. Because uh, I think a lot of people get stuck in wanting to change things, not necessarily knowing how or where to start. And so if you just get people together with similar mindsets, these solutions emerge. So that's something that we're really trying to build upon. Um, yeah, and it's exciting. Yeah, that's it's really interesting to me. I just met with a woman for coffee and she does something very similar and it's for adults and it's around trauma 
and bringing people who have experienced trauma to learn like meet each other they get a meal together and then they learn different strategies of essentially self-care through you know meditation mindfulness yoga and um other practices where they can learn to take care of themselves and um she also gets community people together like you said who are all doing their own bits and pieces around Mm -hmm. mental health in the community and how do we put all these pieces together so that mm-hmm. we can all, you know, have joint inertia essentially <laughs> and, and make a much huger difference yeah, uh, together. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I will make sure I have all your social media info and your website um, on the cool. description of the podcast episode. Um, I uh, Before we part ways, I'd love to ask you if you have any parting suggestions or pieces of advice that you'd really like to um, set forth for somebody who might be going through a depressive state right now? Yeah. um, I I guess the first thing would be, and I think we both touched on it, just this idea of asking for help. Like I, I think, I don't think it's, well, what should I say? I, I think it's important to honor the suffering and the pain and the anguish because it's real and it's there. And I think if we don't honor it, it's hard to move forward. But at the same time, we need help. Nobody has done anything in life on their own. And, you you know, great, the great sort of people that at least that I kind of uh, role models that I like to look up to, um, you know, they've all gotten to where they've gotten because of the help of so many people and, you know, asking for help. It's somewhat of a cliche, but it is a sign of strength. You know, it's not a, it, it's anything but uh, weakness. And so asking for help. And I think when you do, you are shocked by how much people are willing to help you. That is something that has been an incredible lesson to me over time. Not so, you know, not just from my mental health issues, but even into like the work I'm trying to do and whatever it is, people for the most part are really willing to help you. And that's, I think that says a lot about humanity in general. Um, And I think it's really helpful for, for people to believe that if they do ask for help, it will be there and it may not always be there in the way we want it to, or it may be a little bumpy at times. Um, but it's there, I think. And, and it, it just, you know, reach out that hand. And then I, can I add one more little piece? No, to that? I, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Um, and this was more, one of my meditation teachers used this analogy uh, recently it's, you know, this idea that if you can picture yourself as the sun, so the sun is always there, it's always shining and it isn't going anywhere, (laughs) at least in our, probably in, you know, humans will be long extinct before the sun goes anywhere. But if you can think of yourself as the sun and all the issues in your life, and in this case specifically, you know, depression and all the shit that come along that comes along with that as the weather. 
and the weather patterns come and they go and they're really nasty sometimes and you you know you can't see the sun and it's dark and it's etc but behind all of that weather and all that crap the sun is there and it's always shining and that's you that's me that's al that's you that's any person you know we have this capacity this sort of awareness of and it's light really that's inside of us and it just gets blocked up and covered by the storm and the weather and all that crap and so if we can somehow connect to that light or to that sense of shining you know thing that never goes away i just found that to be a really inspiring and helpful way to look through the darkness that comes inevitably and to know that it can pass and usually it does but then it ties back into you know we do need to ask for help and get help right yeah i love that analogy i think that yeah. analogy is fantastic and it really does um describe how we can be at times so and and i can't uh, reiterate enough like you said you've got to ask for help Mm -hmm. Um, and for whatever reason, I think it's a lot more challenging for men typically to mm -hmm. ask for help because it does feel like I, I got to do this on my own. I'm tough. I can handle this. But like you said, asking for help is actually that's that's being the strong person that mm -hmm. is uh, taking a risk, putting yourself out there, making yourself vulnerable, letting somebody know that you need support. But it's yeah. really an important step. It is. Yeah, I really like that you use the word vulnerable too, because it's, yeah, it's it's such a gift to to be able to do that, <laughs> and yeah. once you start getting to do that, it's quite liberating. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Mike, I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, yeah. It's been great uh, to hear your story and to learn about the incredible work you do. Continue your path. Uh, I'll be watching and. Uh, Make sure uh, you stay healthy. Thank you, sir. Yeah, Al, thank you so much. Take it easy, man. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>